everyone, Andy Corrigan, host of Focus here. This is Andrew. My name is Toria Wasana. You can find me as a co-host on Focus and Power of X. We're calling it a wrap on 2021. We've already recorded our final regular episode of the year, but as is our holiday tradition, we like to enter the holiday season with some reflection on our favourite releases of the last 12 months. As with previous years, we've picked a bunch of categories and call out our top picks for each, plus we share our personal games of the year at the end. And also, just like last year, we're joined by a few guests from Game Podular's other shows. Hi, this is Scott from The Power of X. What a treat. Best game we missed last year. Well, the best game I missed last year, I'd have to say that would have to be Hades. I'm not the biggest fan of roguelikes. There's only a very small amount of games that I've actually played in the genre. However, I was aware of the popularity of the game, and when I saw it on special, and I wanted to play something new on my OLED Switch, I jumped at the chance. I haven't delved too much into the game, but from what I've played, it's really good. It controls really well, and the initial weapons and styles you can play with are fantastic. And it also helps that the visual style is absolutely stunning. I just cannot get over how good it looks, especially on the OLED Switch. It's a game you're meant to die in a lot. But you learn each time. I found I was getting better and better with each playthrough and encourage you to keep playing and playing and getting better. Struggling with the first boss, then being able to easily floor them afterwards after each playthrough is so satisfying. And this is Andrew, and I have three clear choices for this category. Two narrative-based games I played early in the year. Neo Cab and What Remains of Edith Finch were both standouts, but... The obvious choice for me is going to be CrossCode, which is the 16-bit retro action RPG that just had a great story, incredible graphics, incredible music, and great puzzles, and just kept me enraptured for weeks on end, as I, I only played it on weekends, as I usually do with RPGs, but it was just absolutely incredible, and the clear winner of this category, and quite frankly... Crosscode was the best game I played this year. I wish it had come out this year. It would have made conundrums I'm going to run into in later categories much easier to solve. But that is not how the year went. The Outer Worlds. I gave this a miss originally due to criticism about the quality of the port, but I picked it up on sale while I was in the middle of a heavy FPS phase. Uh, made by Obsidian as a Fallout New Vegas-style FPS RPG, I was not disappointed in it at all. I've thoroughly enjoyed the setting of the Halcyon star system, working my way through the colonies, solving problems or making things worse, and making game-changing decisions. The combat is super fun too, which feels much more functional as an FPS than Bethesda's Fallout efforts, but loses none of the tactical elements I enjoy. And by the time I picked it up, Many of the launch performance problems have been fixed, so while it would obviously never run as nice or look as pretty as it does on my PC or Xbox, I was not mad with how it ran on Switch at all. Uh, shout out to Fuser here, which just narrowly missed out. Best Port or Remaster This is Andrew, and my choices for Best Port or Remaster were pretty clear. Uh, Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 1 and 2 is a great port of two of my favorite games, Remastered. Uh, remade entirely with a lot of the soundtrack intact and just the best Tony Hawk game made in in decades but Activision made it they can go to hell so no they don't win this category and Nino Kuni 2 was a really great RPG 
but not a really great port, unfortunately. Just absolutely beautiful, but just the way it ran was not up to the standards of what we should expect for a full-price product. So I recommend the game, but I just can't give it the win for best port because it, uh, it is not a good port, to put it frankly. So the best port is going to have to be the Castlevania Advance Collection, which is uh, three very good games, the sort of the foundation of the Metroidvania genre as it exists today uh, in a single package at a great price, and I've actually seen it on sale for an even better price a number of times. I recommend all three of these games, but especially Aria of Sorrow, which is probably the best Castlevania game ever made. And they're all here in one package, and these are the best port for the Switch in 2021. For me, it would have to be the Super Mario 3D World re-release that came with uh, Bowser's Fury. It's just a joy revisiting that game. Um, it's not the big open world game of like Odyssey, but it's still got a lot to discover and a very unique uh, way of controlling and, and the way it plays and feels. My pick for best port or remaster, and I'm going to be cheating a little bit here, I'm going to have to say Doom Eternal DLC, The Ancient Gods, Part 1 and Part 2. I chose this because I am still absolutely floored about how they can get this game running on six-year-old mobile tech. Yeah, the original base game running on the Switch, which was already incredible, but then they released these DLCs on the other systems and... They were just bigger, bigger levels. And I also couldn't imagine how were they able to get this running on the Switch. But panic button, they ended up doing it. And really, like I've got I've got the games on the other systems and they're fantastic to play, but I've probably ran these DLCs um, through my Switch more times than I than I could count. It has a really stable frame rate, much more stable than the original 2016 Doom. And it doesn't have that fuzziness that the Wolfenstein ports have. It just runs really, really well. And I sort of consider that probably would be my best port of the year. Were it not for Odyssey, Super Mario 3D World would easily be my favourite 3D Mario game of all time. As the name suggests, 3D World takes 3D gameplay but frames it in a 2D Mario-style gauntlet. And it works much better than it has any right to. 3D World for me is simply Nintendo at its most creative. Every single level is a banger, and despite never reusing any of its great ideas twice, it's just a constant delight all the way through. And yes, it's even just as fun the second time round. And this remaster also includes Bowser's Fury, a brand new, short, experimental 3D platformer that's more in line with other 3D Mario games in terms of its structure and goals, but it tries out some new ideas that we're sure to see in the future. A brilliant package all round. Best Indie. For me, the best indie game would have to be the Chapter 2 of Deltarune that released this year. Uh, I'm a big Undertale fan and I absolutely loved Chapter 1 of Deltarune. So seeing that story continue and that world continue to grow, um, one of the best villains, great music, great art direction. It's just such a joy to play. My 2021 indie game of the year is Dusk. I'd known this had been out on PC for quite a while, but I did know it was going to come to Switch, and I thought I was going to just wait until it came in. And funny enough, it actually came in just after the OLED Switch came out, so it actually looks really good 
considering the visual style of the game itself. You know, this is just a throwback shooter and not just one that automatically goes into the whole um, like 2.5D like with Doom and Duke Nuke and so forth. This one goes like rigidly back into the whole Quake era, which is a very in interesting design. It, it works quite well. The setting is creepy. It controls very much like Quake, but also putting in its own unique spins with dual weapons and spinning of the weapons. That's always a fun one to do. It really is a unique take on the whole first-person genre. Unpacking kind of came out of nowhere for me, but it's definitely up there as one of my favourite games of the year. Digging through someone's entire life by unpacking their belongings at every transitional stage feels kind of invasive and voyeuristic initially, but there's an odd zen about unloading box after box and finding the perfect spot in their digital living space for everything contained within. Plus the way it uses this to tell a story is just phenomenally well done. More on that later. This is the toughest category this year. This was the most competitive category this year because I have to say, personally, I felt that the AAA and even the AA releases this year were very disappointing. And almost everything that I really got excited about this year was an indie game. But even having said that, there were still disappointments this year. I had high hopes for Eastward. I was sure Eastward would at least be competitive in this category this year and eastward is not a bad game but turned out not to be the game of the year caliber both andy and i were building it up in our minds as being but nevertheless there were still games this year that i really really enjoyed and i'm really really excited and recommend that people play uh, tales of iron which i just played recently uh, I said up front, this is a flawed game, but a game that I really liked. I like the themes, I like the design, I like the goals, uh, I like the length, <laughs> I liked the difficulty. Uh, it's not a perfect game, but I did want to give it acknowledgement for this category. I definitely thought about it, but it's just not a very interesting world, which is the main thing holding it back from ultimate you know game of the year level greatness and then there's also loop hero which just came out in just the past week and i've been playing it very obsessively i i, I can't stop playing it quite frankly but i i haven't decided if i actually like it but it has certainly been drawing me in and it's, it's only been in the past day or so where i've come to the decision actually yeah this game is pretty great but I still haven't finished it. I don't know if it's best indie caliber. I just, I, without having finished it and knowing just how much grindier it's going to become, I don't want to recommend it and give it the best indie award and then over our hiatus discover that I actually get sick of playing this game and I, I don't feel that way anymore. That could happen. It could happen. So I don't know. Uh, right now, I am loving Loop Hero. I don't know what's going to happen in two weeks. So that one is also out unpacking is a standout of the year it's a very smart game in many ways and i do think that it is a best indie quality game but i do have to give this category to griftlands which was the first game i played this year where i, I said thank god finally a game coming out in 2021 that i think i could actually give game of the year to and it didn't come out until June, unfortunately. That was, uh, I was really worried about this year at that point. 
There are a lot of deck builders being made lately. Uh, I think this is a really excellent way to get you into one because it's very narrative-driven and very character-driven, and it also has three really interesting characters who whose decks create very interesting and different types of RPGs uh, and just the way the characters function within those RPGs. So if you've ever wanted to get into deck builders, Griftlands, I think, is the place to start. For those reasons and many more, that's why Griftlands is my best indie of the year. Best multiplayer. The best multiplayer game for 2021 was Mario Party Superstars. This is a throwback to the original Nintendo 64 Mario Party games, and I love it. And there's so many ways you can play this. You can play this by yourself. You can play this with the CPU. You can play this with local multiplayer, either via the TV or on tabletop mode. And finally, you're able to do this with actual good online multiplayer that's easy enough to get in and get out, whether by everyone getting out or if one person just drops out and just replaces them with a CPU. And I also love the fact that you're able to effectively save a state of a game and then come back to it later. My choice for best multiplayer will probably throw people because my pick is a single-player JRPG. It's Bravely Default too. Any long-term listeners will know that multiplayer really isn't my bag outside of games I can lone wolf in and that I prefer incidental or asynchronous multiplayer. And that's the category that Bravely Default 2 falls in. Replacing the 3DS's Street Pass features from the previous games, in Bravely Default your party can send out a boat to forage for goodies as you adventure or as your Switch sleeps. Do this online, and they'll interact with main characters of other players and find treasure or exchange goods. All it really means is that a day later your boat will come back chocked full of useful items, including much-needed JP orbs which you can use to help quickly level up your jobs. Now, I don't play a lot of multiplayer games, maybe like a handful, but uh, I always like co-op games the most, which is why I've picked Monster Hunter Rise. Um, It was the most intuitive multiplayer experience I've had in the Monster Hunter series. And the world is just built around it. It's just a lot of fun hunting monsters with friends. Best Narrative Design My pick for Best Narrative of 2021 is Deltarune Chapter 2. I love Urpan, I love Undertale, I love the original Deltarune Chapter 1, and this one is no exception. It continues on with the adventures for Chris, Susie, and Rasley. It was interesting to see how they transitioned from a full game with the original Undertale to a chapter-by-chapter setting with Deltarune. I found the new setting of the Cyberworld to be fun. It was great that they introduced the some of the original characters, Noelle and Beardley, and also with the fun, wacky antics of the Queen. <laughs> One of the funniest moments for me was with Susie and the pots. <laughs> yeah, I'm just glad this series is continuing on, and I really do look forward to the next set of chapters that hopefully don't take too long to um, come out. So far, I've had a number of games in each category that I, I've shouted out, but this one, there is a clear winner. I immediately went to it, and I didn't have to think much more about it to know that there was really no other game this year that competed with it in narrative design, which is 
not just the quality of the story that is being told in the game, but also how the game design tells the story, because game design is a form of storytelling, and really a lot of the games out there, they don't really do much interesting as far as advancing a story using what you're doing in the game to advance the story. Usually you're just doing something on one side, on your left side of your brain, while on the right side of your brain you're looking at cutscenes that really don't have much to do with what you're doing in the actual game. But anyway, I'm off track here. Uh, best narrative design is unpacking, where the only way you can comprehend the story being told in this game, the only way you can learn about the person whose life we are following through the course of this game is by actually playing the game. And the game is very simple. You're just unpacking their possessions every time they move. That's the entire game. And it's simple, it's, it's easy, and it's short, and it's brilliant. And unpacking is no contest the best narrative design of the year. I think the best narrative that I've encountered this year would have to be Deltarune Chapter 2 again. Uh, it just took all of that world building from Undertale and Deltarune Chapter 1 and just expanded on it in a really interesting way while also having some sort of player-controlled moments that kind of mess with you in terms of the blurring the line between you as the player and you as the player character. Um tying that into the story and the characters is just one of my favorite things that you can only really do in video games and they did it perfectly unpacking easily had the best narrative design of any game i've played this year i've already covered it a little but unpacking follows the protagonist's life through every house move they make and what you pull out of their boxes tells you all you need to know about their life at that time without explicitly telling you from childhood to college years, relationships, toxic and otherwise, it's intriguing to find out where they are in life and what cherished constants make those journeys with them. Utterly delightful. Shout out to Necrobarista Final Pour, which also had one of my favourite stories this year in the traditional sense, but that story was more set in stone rather than benefiting a gameplay mechanic. Best Soundtrack Another easy pick for this year for best soundtrack, and uh, it's it's kind of a lazy choice and kind of an obvious choice, but I, I picked a game focused on music, so naturally uh, uh, it's got a strong soundtrack, because if you have a game about music that doesn't have a strong soundtrack, then you have problems. Uh, but I picked Everhood, which by appearances looks a lot like Undertale, and Undertale also has an incredible soundtrack, but it actually has a much more varied soundtrack than you might expect just looking at it. It's not just retro midi beeps and boops. There are a lot of musical genres and musical instruments and arrangements and choices made in this game that really made it stand out, as Everhood is easily the best soundtrack of the year. Scott Pilgrim vs. The World, the game, re-release, got mixed reception on our show, but I absolutely love it and I really enjoyed my revisit with it. Uh, chief among the things I like about it is the soundtrack by chiptune band Anna Managuchi. Fast-paced, upbeat and catchy, it's perfect for both the video game-inspired source material and when you're beating up hoodlums through a pixel art Toronto. It's simply banger after banger. I think my favourite soundtrack this year would definitely have to be Neo The World Ends With You. Uh, it's just got 
that great blend of a little bit of J-pop, a little bit of rock, a bit of um, alternate rock, I guess you'd call it, even a little bit of uh, hip-hop and rap. It just really adds to the portrayal of uh, Shibuya that you see in the game. It suits the characters, and I ended up finding the soundtrack on Spotify, and it was one of my most played uh, artists or albums of the year on uh, Spotify. So it's definitely a whole lot of really awesome tracks that work outside of the game as well. Best soundtrack of 2021 is, again, Deltarune Chapter 2. I'm choosing this because out of all the games I played this year, this one is the only one that's on my Spotify playlist. The soundtrack is able to articulate the setting for each individual section of the game, from the somber My Castle Town to the constant humorous Queen music. It's also great to hear the original Delta Room battle music pumping through every time. I love the mix of 8-bit, 16-bit, and, you know, recent music genres that get into this game. The highlight for me would be the music you hear when you're battling the big queen with the soundtracks power combined and knock you down. And because it takes me back, obviously, to the original Power Rangers music and not just Power Rangers, but the Super Nintendo Power Rangers, which is a game I used to own and have very nostalgic feelings for. So it's great to hear that within this game. Best sound design. Now, when you think about sound, usually in a game, you, you go straight to the music, but much as narrative design is how a game uses narrative to create the game and to enhance the game, sound design is the same thing for sound. So music can be a part of this, but not so much for my choice this year, which I have chosen, Golf Club Wasteland, which was probably a contender for best soundtrack too, but it didn't quite edge out Everhood. Uh, but while you are playing golf across the ruins of Earth... You hear both just the empty stillness of Earth, but also the radio station from Mars that is broadcasting to Earth where this rich person who is playing golf through the world that they destroyed uh, and just listens to all these ironic kind of national public radio quality style radio shows and then these really eclectic musical choices and just these spoken word pieces that really fill you in on on the kind of people who survived the destruction of earth and not a single one of them as a person really who deserved to survive it, it was just amazing collage of sounds that they created that really uh, i would have been ecstatic just to listen to that uh, aside from the game if i just stumbled across it on youtube or on spotify or something but it's also an excellent part of the game itself so that's why i've chosen best sound design for golf club wasteland well me i the way i interpret this one is a game whose sound effects are instantly recognizable but also play into the so the the diegetic feel of them like they belong in the world but they serve the purpose of helping you identify when the Emmy is chasing you or the enemies when they got their uh, counter um, mechanism 
when the best moment to, to hit that is. And a whole bunch of other just subtle environmental effects. The music is moody. It all just ties in and it really helps sell the uh, environment and the feeling of what Metroid typically is, which is a an alien planet where you're all alone. Uh, also, extra props to inventing an entirely new uh, Chozo language just for this game. Um, someone's translated it. It's an actual language with its own grammar, even. Um, and it just sounds awesome being spoken out loud. Um, and there's also one moment at the end of the game that I won't spoil. But I'm sure most of you have seen it and you know what I'm talking about with Samus. It sent chills up my spine. My pick for sound design is Metroid Dread. This game I always make sure to put my headphones on. The music itself isn't the most memorable in the series, but it does really go well with the dark atmosphere. The sound effects are where it really shines, I believe. From Samus's blaster to the footsteps she makes to the monster grunts all around you, it really blends in well. And for me, when you get up to and um, notice the Emmy, you notice it really the sounds it makes, it really just put the dread in you. And last I'll mention that I love how the game handles the voice acting, the very few instances that it does. It's really is it alive and very clever how it actually does that. A bit of a cheat this one, sorry, but my pick for this is Tetris Effect Connected. It's a cheat because I haven't yet played it on Switch, but I'm picking it because it released this year for Nintendo's console. Look, honestly, I struggled with the selection for this category, as while lots of games I've played had great soundtracks or great sound, nothing stood out as being notable in their particular design. Tetris Effect soundtrack, however, is not only built to work pleasingly alongside the sound of your pieces falling into place as you play Tetris, it also brilliantly matches the distinct visual themes of each stage as you work your way through the story campaign, which I highly recommend playing. Best Visual Design For Best Visual Design, my pick is WarioWare Get It Together. It's not a powerhouse performer, but it is very much keeping with the series and their unique designs. With over 200 micro games, you get the classic Wario design um, from the cutscenes as well as the chibi style while actually playing the game. Uh, you get the simpler to detailed art styles from the cartoonish to the real and the in-between. And it wears this wackiness as a badge of honor, not being afraid to delve into the dreaded toilet humor. <laughs> and it's also always a treat to see how they show their classic gaming history with the nine volt stages. A number of interesting choices for best visual design for me this year. I do again, once again, have to shout out Nino Kuni 2, which might be flat out the best looking game on Switch, but again, also doesn't run great. It runs about 20 to 25 FPS because of how good it looks, and <laughs> that that really does hold it back. So I'm going to mention that, how good it looks in screenshots, but when you're actually playing it, there's just this constant feeling that the game is running in slow motion, which is really unfortunate. And this has been the year of indies for Andrew, because the indies were the only games that excited me this year. Uh, but Griftlands has a really interesting like almost static style where characters will appear on screen as these really large 
profile pictures that have very limited animation, but also very effective animation when they do move. When you annoy a character, when you make a character like you, they have these very brief but very expressive animations that just really stuck with me. It's a strong contender. And also Greek Memories of Azer, which was an adventure platformer that I liked, but was unfortunately much, 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 much too short. And that was my main problem with it. But it has absolutely incredible hand-drawn animation throughout for all three of the playable characters and all the monsters you fight and all the NPCs you interact with. Just absolutely beautiful game to look at. If there's any reason to play Greek Memories of Azer, it is to see that hand-drawn animation. But I do have to give the best visual design nod to Eastward, which was the reason I was excited for it. I believe it's also the reason Andy was excited for it, because as soon as you saw those graphics, those you could call them 16-bit graphics because they're kind of evoking that age, but they are just so much more detailed. These are the kind of pixel graphics that you can only do in HD, and just the use of color is so good. Everything is is just gold and brown and red. And it just gives this impression of summer passing into fall and into winter, which really speaks to the theme of the game as John guides this young girl through the apocalypse it's another one of those games you know it's not super original but visually just the quality of the pixel art and the amount of pixel art in eastward and the use of lighting because it does have a real-time lighting system which i don't think anybody on the show or in our related websites has talked enough about but it, even though it's a pixel art game it has real-time lighting in it and it just the shadows and the darkness and the contrast the contrast between light and dark is really effective. It's a beautiful game. If there's any reason to play Eastward, it's for the graphics. And it, it, it was a letdown both for Andy and I in terms of you know how fun the game was to play. But I still think it's a, it's a decent enough game. It's worth playing. And those graphics are the best thing in it. So best visual design for Eastward. Having only ever played one Metroid game before, that's Game Boy Advance's Metroid Fusion, Metroid Dread felt like a bit of a revelation for me this year, and I really enjoyed its aesthetic all round. Uh, that's because each area on planet ZDR has its own distinct design and tone, but there's a terrific underlying consistency that runs throughout that helps it feel just like the huge facility it's portrayed as, and not several disconnected parts. Even though it's just a semi-open side-scrolling area, it felt way more than that, even in spite of some of the series' most video gamey elements. So much like with the sound design, the way that Metroid Dread is, well, any Metroid game, to be honest, with its very distinct areas that have, you know, you've got your hot area, you've got your desert, your jungle, your facility. It had a really good visual design language because it's not just about looking pretty, which it did, obviously, but being easily readable for gameplay reasons, where you can and can't go. I think it did a spectacular job of really communicating to the player while also looking absolutely gorgeous. Best game to play on an OLED Switch. So a fun little category we added this year is just 
what game we thought is really great to play on an OLED switch, which has a unique way of showing pixels compared to most displays that people have because each pixel is individually lit. So if a pixel is showing blackness, it will just not light up. So it will be pure black. Whereas if you're playing it on a regular screen or even on most uh, displays or most computer monitors, that black pixel is still lit up because of the backlight that makes it so the screen is visible in the first place. So the best looking games on an OLED are the games that have a really strong contrast between light and dark colors. So really the more blacks and the more darker shades of color that a game uses, the better it's going to look on an OLED. And there are a number of games that were effective for that this year, like Subnautica has a lot of really dark spaces you go into. Loop Hero has a lot of black spaces because you're rebuilding the world over and over and over again after it's been consumed by this void of nothingness basically so just at the start of every game you're just surrounded by black and you slowly fill it in yet even as you fill in those things the colors are still really dark loop hero looks great on an oled for that reason but this category is open to any game from any year so i went back a little bit to darkest dungeon which is a game that just loves its dark colors and it looks incredible on an oled switch and really helps to uh inject some new life into the game just really seeing the the visual design of the game and the the color choices that that the developers made uh seeing them probably in a a purer version of what they intended the game to look like so uh that's why i've chosen darkest dungeon as the best game to play on an oled switch so metroid dread came out on the switch um, right when the OLED model came out. Uh, so this is a bit of a cliche pick, but it really did sell the benefits of why OLED is worth the time and attention on a handheld. Um, the contrast between the dark areas and the light areas where, you know, your eyes are meant to be drawn to, it just looks absolutely stunning. The colors just pop and there's not even like a huge amount of color in Metroid Dread, but what is there really stands out and it looks absolutely gorgeous. Like everyone for the first couple of days during which I did re-download everything was looking to see what game I hadn't played in a while, what it looked like on a new OLED screen. From Breath of the Wild to the Doom series, from Cuphead to Crisis, it was amazing to see what games benefited from the vibrant colors to the deep blacks with that new screen. But for my pick of the game to play on an OLED Switch, I have to go with the game it launched with, Metroid Dread. From the moment you start the game, you're greeted with the title, with the bright white Metroid to the searing, almost burning red Dread logo. The game shows the bright and vivid backgrounds with beautiful scenery from the forest to the industrial areas to underwater and contrasts that with the infinite black foreground with nothing being washed out as compared to a standard LED screen. I truly believe this game shows how future games can look incredible on the new OLED screen. It's by no accident that Metroid Dread released alongside the OLED Switch, and in many ways it feels like it's the game the OLED model was made for. Switching from my 4K LCD TV to the Switch's new screen gave light to a night and day difference. It just looked 100% better on docked. 
Metroid Dread has a dark, creepy, and claustrophobic visual tone. It is a horror game, after all. And the few sources of light and colour contrast beautifully against the cold, terrifying backdrop of Planet ZDR. Top 3 Games of the Year In no particular order, Super Mario 3D World. A wonderful 3D Mario not appreciated enough in its original form, now re-released on modern hardware. Metroid Dread. A once-thought cancelled spin-off game appears as the fifth entry in the official Metroid timeline. Monster Hunter Rise. An open-ended monster battling game in the popular series dating back to the PlayStation 2. So this is an easy one because I've already mentioned all of the games on this list uh, in the other segments. Um, in no particular order, my top three games on Switch were Metroid Dread, Neo The World Ends With You, and Deltarune Chapter 2. Uh, they're all absolutely fascinating narrative-driven games that have completely different uh, styles and approaches. I highly recommend checking out each and every one of them. I'm going to be really difficult, um, but it doesn't matter. We, we, we This isn't really a formal awards show, but <laughs> I just have a hard time giving Game of the Year awards to games unless I feel that they really stand up. And like, if I'm going to give a Game of the Year award to 2021, I, I got to feel like it stands up to what I gave Game of the Year in 2020 and in 2019 and in 2018. And there were games this year that I really liked. There were, but none of them stand up, <laughs> really. This, this was a super disappointing year for me, I, just because... The, the really standout games were just the games that I didn't really like. Like, I, I do have to shout out Monster Hunter Rise, which is a great game. I can see that. It's also just not the kind of game that really grabs my attention for long periods of time. I can tell you if you're interested in Monster Hunter Rise, if that sounds like something you would enjoy, you should get it. I can tell you it's a great game. It's just not the kind of game that I think is great if you... Once again, Nino Kuni 2, I think, is one of the best games I played this year. Again, visually brilliant. It's got a really intricate kingdom building system that kept me occupied for a long time. But just again, the performance. The performance is just not up to the standards of what we should be seeing on a Switch game. So even though I really liked it, and I do think it's a great RPG, and I do think it's one of the best games I played this year, I'm not going to give it a Game of the Year title. Not not at the level of this port quality. <laughs> Sorry. Again, I have to shout out Loop Hero. I thought I think Loop Hero is going to be great, but I haven't finished it yet. I I'm still concerned that I'm going to get sick of the grind and and turn on it before I finish it. So I'm not giving it to Loop Hero. Uh, Griftlands was my indie game of the year. As I said earlier, it was the first game I played this year that I thought might actually be a game of the year contender. But I'm just, I'm not prepared to give it that award. I'm just, I'm just not. Uh, for reasons I can't quite fully put into words. It's just, you know, you know something when you see it. And when I look at Griftlands, I go, that's a great game. I really like it. I did give it best indie. But I'm not giving it game of the year because I just don't think it is the game of the year. That leaves just one, one possible choice. 
My top three games of the year are Metroid Hunter Rise, Unpacking, and Metroid Dread. Our individual game of the year. And my game for the year for Switch is Monster Hunter Rise. I've always been interested in the Monster Hunter series, fascinated by the prize it got, but I never really clicked with it. This wasn't for lack of trying. I had tried three Ultimate, four, and Generations. And while I was able to play and understand them, I really didn't get far. That changed with Monster Hunter Rise. I feel like everything was changed for the better. The sometimes slows and methodical actions, still present within certain weapon types, didn't feel incredibly intentional, intentional as if to punish you. There was always a way you can go learn how to quickly get out of a move if something was coming after you. I mostly played with the dual blades, and it's a simple yet effective type for getting small but fast attacks into a beast while getting charged for bigger DPS. The wire bug mechanic is a game changer. From being able to zip around the stage and climb up everywhere to using it not only for attacking monsters, but to be able to pick yourself up so easily after being knocked to the ground is just fantastic. And it's always fun to and fast to run around on your doggo. Quality life improvements such as not needing to stop to gather basic items like potions and not needing to cool down or heat yourself up depending on the type of stage you're playing on just makes playing it so much easier. This was the first Monster Hunter game I was able to beat in single player. But as we all know, that's not the end. The online in this game is robust, from partying up with your friends to responding to a random player's call for help. It really is solid. The online works like single player, but with more people, it's just that simple. And with that, I was able to beat all the online monsters and get the first true ending, clocking in about 120 hours. And so Monster Hunter Rise is my Switch game of the year. I'm contending with uh, some hypocrisy here because uh, <laughs> there was a game that I gave best indie to and I didn't give it to another indie game. And I'm now giving that game that I didn't give best indie to, I'm making it my game of the year. But uh, it doesn't make any sense, but these are my choices. <laughs> uh, my game of the year is Unpacking, I guess. I, uh, it, it's not at all an enthusiastic endorsement of Game of the Year. It's just, of all the games I played this year, Unpacking was the most unique one. It was the most special one. I think it's the one that's going to hold up the best over time. It's going to be the one that we look back on and we go, oh yeah, that was a great game. Not, oh yeah, that did come out. I forgot about that. Uh, unpacking, is it's just, it's a special game. It's not the best game I've ever played. It's not the best unique or special game I've ever played, but of all the games released in this very disappointing year of 2021, Unpacking is, I think, the most important game, the most special game, and the most unique game, and that's why I've chosen it, even though I didn't give it best indie, because <laughs> uh, my thought process here does not make any sense. So, Happy New Year. Next year is looking to be much better because all the games that were supposed to come out this year looks like they've been pushed back to next year. <laughs> so happy indie year since almost all my choices were indies. And God, I wish CrossCode had come out this year. While I said that there wasn't a particular order to the games that I put on my top three, Metroid Dread was still the standout. Uh, it was an absolutely amazing gameplay experience especially after I think 17 years of a Metroid drought. So it's got that significance to it as well. 
I might feel differently down the line one day about it, but it's still the game that sticks out in my mind. I think it's definitely going to stay with me for a very long time. I had a very close run choice for my game of the year for 2021, but I'm going to give it to Monster Hunter Rise. Metroid Dread was great, unpacking was extremely charming, but Monster Hunter Rise deserves it as it's the entry that finally caused the series' famed formula to click with me. I've always admired Monster Hunter on paper, and I've tried umpteen times over the years to get into it, but always gave up a few missions in and would abandon it entirely. However, after skipping Monster Hunter World, uh, just because of that, but coming back to Rise, it's the modernising and overhaul of both its combat and traversal, pretty much its entire game feel, that has meant it's finally stuck with me. What previously felt to me as disjointed or clunky now feels fluid, fast-paced and energetic. What was unnecessarily complex before has been made more accessible, but not dumbed down. Thanks to both the Palamute and the Wirebug, painful slow traversal has given way to a quick pace and a new verticality, the latter with some Wirebug practice admittedly. It turns out these things were the real barriers to my enjoyment and not the formula itself. So it's a series I was desperate to say was for me, and now it very much is. It's true I might have had the same revelations had I given Monster Hunter World a go, but ultimately it's Rise that sealed the deal, and that's why it's my game of the year. Hello, this is Sound Guy Craig, just coming out of retirement to edit this episode. That's our final episode of 2021, and thank you so much for listening. Andy, Andrew, and Tori will return with new episodes of NFocus sometime in January, all rested and raring to go for a new year of Switch games. If you'd like to leave some presents under our trees, iTunes reviews are always appreciated. You can also check out the other game podular shows, PlayState and The Power of X. We do also take cash. You can buy us a coffee or become a game podular Patreon. Donations via these platforms help with the running of the podcasts and everything from web hosting to software licenses. And finally, to make Christmas complete, you can join our Discord family to interact with our community. You can also follow us on Twitter, YouTube, and at gamepodular.com. This episode was edited by me, Craig Windle, and you can find me on Twitter at craigadycraig. You can also find our regular Game Podular hosts. Andy is at Flame Roast Toast. Andrew is at Play Critically with his long-form reviews at playcritically.com. Tori is at Stew2, that's S-T-W-T-W-O, and streams at twitch.tv forward slash Tori S-T-W. And Scott, who joined us today all the way from Power of X, is at the Scotty J-Man.
what a treat.